Thank you all very much for coming. It's a great pleasure for me to be able to welcome one of our alumni, um, President Santos. And uh, so welcome home, welcome back to the LSE. Um, my name is uh, Nick Stern. I'm Professor of Economics and Government here. And uh, I had the great pleasure to be in Colombia earlier this year. In particular, I, give, I was giving a lecture, but also had the chance to discuss with those involved in planning what the objectives of Colombia were and how they were proceeding uh, to uh, pursue those objectives through economic and environmental and other policies. Colombia is defining a path for economic development, growth, poverty reduction, and environment and climate responsibility as an integrated whole. Not all parts of the world see those things as integrated. And they must be integrated. They're common challenges. They're very tightly bound together. And Colombia is showing great leadership in putting those different parts of policy, economic, social, environment together. Um, Colombia is a country which is quite extraordinarily biodiverse. Biodiversity, of course, comes with uh, challenges and responsibilities as well as opportunities. And uh, again, uh, climate, uh, environment, growth strategies are being studied together and in a very constructive way. And I did talk to many of those involved in the planning ministry about how they were going about that. I've also witnessed in the last few meetings of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change how Colombia has been offering leadership, uh, particularly for the developing world, um, but much more generally in those climate change discussions, trying to find ways forward, trying to navigate the difficulties and the genuine tensions that are there, and navigating them precisely on the basis of that combination of development, poverty re reduction, and climate and environmental responsibility. Navigating through on that conceptual and action basis of the integration of these things. So thank you, President Santos, for that leadership in action on these challenges and in the United Nations itself. We have just under an hour. Uh, the President has to leave at one o'clock and we'd like to have roughly half time for his uh, presentation to us today and roughly half the time for questions. So those of you who are thinking about the questions, you have a little time to think about how to formulate them really briefly so that others can uh, get a chance. And because this is an invitation from the school and the students, I'm going to give priority to students in asking the questions. The lecturers and professors here will be second in order of priority, and the press will be third, depending on the time we have. But this is a student institution, and I felt that student questions should come first. But please, please keep them brief. I will say that again when we come to ask the questions. So welcome back. President Santos, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the leadership on issues which are particularly close to my own heart. 
and we look forward very much to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lord Stern, and uh, thank you all very much for attending this, uh, this uh, lecture. Um, I'm very, very happy and very excited to be back after almost uh, 40 years when I studied here, 1973-1974. I remember very well uh, how much I studied. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, it was a great experience, a great experience. The last time I, I came to the LSE was uh, in 2008. I came as Minister of Defense, and I, I gave a, a talk at the Shaw Library. And uh, it was also very exciting, but I never imagined back in 1973-74 that I would be back at the LSE as president of my country. So I'm very excited and uh, very proud to be here uh, my former alma mater and with my uh, colleague students of the LSE. We can always say, where did you go? I went to the LSE. Um, I, um, the, the, when I came here, uh, it was a different time. I had as my, one of my teachers, uh, Peter Bauer, Lord Bauer, who then became one of the advisors of uh, Margaret Thatcher and Professor Mint. And I remember uh, that at that time, the theory of, one of the theories of economic development and one of the discussions was the theory of uh, uh, dependency, how the center and the periphery, and there was uh, a big discussion in Latin America, there was an economist by the name of Raul Previsch, who who was one of the most controversial economists saying that there's a, a theory that all the countries that uh, were in the periphery depended on the center and that we had no way out of, uh, of that uh, uh, situation. Then the world, uh, at, at that time, and I, I studied here and then started working in the International Coffee Organization. The, the, uh, at that time, the commodity agreements were in fashion. And uh, the commodity agreements were the exact contrary to what free trade means. Uh, the commodity agreements, which were under the umbrella of the United Nations, um, said that the way to, to administer trade was through quotas and, and price ranges. And coffee was, at that time, the second most important product in world trade, and in my country was the most important product in our exports. We depended in Colombia, almost 65% of our exports was coffee. So I stayed here in London working in the internet as a delegate for my country to the International Coffee Organization. Uh, then, as always happens throughout history, um, the paradigm started to change. Uh, we went into, into the area of the free trade, uh, very much influenced by Margaret Thatcher 
here in the UK, Ronald Reagan in the US, and what is uh, today called the neoliberalism started to be, become uh, the, the paradigm for the, the economist uh, and uh, the economic policy of the, of the uh, majority of the countries in the world. And uh, later on uh, came other, uh, other theory, theories emerged. One of them uh, was the theory of the Third Way, which a former director of the LSE, uh, Lord Giddens, uh, he wrote uh, very much about the Third Way, uh, that uh, said no, it's not free. It's not a, a completely free trade. It's not uh, completely the markets. Not completely the state. There's a there's a, a middle of the way. Uh, he summed up the theory of the third way, saying you must allow the markets to work until it's possible, but then you must intervene with the state until it's necessary. That, in a way, could be applied to any situation. But it, it was a very pragmatic way to approach uh, the economic problems and the problems of development and to answer one of those questions that are always in the mind of every uh, government leader or any uh, official in any public office. Where do you draw the line between the state and the markets? Like, where do you draw the line between individual rights and collective rights? Um, or where do you draw the lines between peace and justice? These are eternal discussions that uh, fluctuates from one extreme to the other according to the circumstances. Um, and uh, uh, we and I personally sort of adopted the third way as a, an answer, a political answer, to the problems of my country. And uh, in a way I could say that uh, the LSE has given me uh, a lot of instruments to, to uh, work for my country and to have my country progress in, in the direction that is we are going today. And the, what I wanted to address to you is how, by applying this third way, and, and what is it that we have done in Colombia that we can say today, 2011, uh, that we are a rising star in the world, and not, I don't say it, everybody's saying it, and only 10 years ago, just 10 years ago, we were about to be declared a failed state, a state that uh, a failed state by uh, the the academics defined a failed state as a state where uh, the the government and uh, the judicial system does not apply the the law, uh, where the government or the state does not control the territory, and we were on the verge of being declared a failed state. Uh, and how and why can we, did, did we manage to change the country and why is it that we are today um, 
mentioned as one of the rising stars and one of the most effective democracies in the emerging world. Well, um, as I said, 10 years ago, we were almost a failed state, and we realized that uh, security was, as the Romans used to say, the basis from which we can construct any of the public policies that we want to apply. If there is no security, the Romans used to say, and this is what we applied, then there's no way you can apply any other law with any degree of effectiveness. So my predecessor um, started what he called democratic security policy. Democratic had two meanings, very important, two meanings. Democratic was security for everybody, regardless if he was in uh, pro-government or in the opposition. But everybody who, who was under the umbrella of the rule of law should have a minimum security. But also, the democratic meant security following the, the rules dictated by our Constitution and our laws. That means respecting human rights. And the, the respect for human rights was fundamental in applying a security policy if we wanted, and this is applicable to any country, if we wanted the security policy, policy to be legitimate. So we, we started, uh, and he started applying this, uh, this concept of democratic security uh, with a high degree of success because at the same time uh, changes were made in uh, our armed forces structure, in the efficiency of uh, our police, our army, our air force, our navy, and uh, we started to, to um, achieve one very important objective, regain the control of our territory. And this started to change the, immediately the, the mood of the country. And uh, slowly we started to progress. And I, I will give you an example of, of, of the change that we've had in, in the last eight years. Eight years ago, we have uh, in Colombia 1,100-plus uh, municipalities. Out of those one almost 1,100-plus municipalities, 400 mayors of the municipalities were not able, eight years ago, to work from their municipalities because of security reasons. Either the guerrilla groups or the paramilitaries uh, controlled the territory, and they, they did not allow the elected officials to, to work from their respective uh, towns. Um, that was the situation eight years ago. Today, every single mayor is working from its own municipality. This is simply to show you the, the change in terms of security that we have, uh, that we have uh, uh, achieved. And, and that was the basis for starting the application of other policies that have been extremely successful in a very short amount of time. With, with the security issue not completely resolved because we still have problems, but uh, 
with the enough progress being made, um, we then said the the most important objective right now after security is um, economic and social uh, objectives. If we want to make uh, Colombia a very a sustainable democracy in the long run. And we must also modernize the state, um, applying a, a principle that I've defended all my life uh, called the principle of good government. Uh, good government means uh, something very simple, a government that is transparent, a government that is efficient, a, govern a government that is effective, and a government that uh, has the, the principle of responsibility as uh, one of its priorities. Responsibility means uh, allowing the, the citizens to, to demand um, the, that the government uh, gives them the information that they, they need, and uh, responsibility is a principle that works two ways, from the government towards the citizens and the citizens towards the government. By applying that very simple um, uh, simple concept of good government and establishing the third way uh, policies of uh, uh, economic uh, uh, development and economic growth, we started then to, to build uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the whole economic and social structure uh, processes that started to give results. Um, we decided that uh, we need high economic growth in order to have the conditions necessary to be able to uh, apply a very aggressive social policy. If there's no high economic growth, there's no uh, resources available to apply social, good social uh, policies. Uh, but um, as many of the students of, of economics have probably uh, learned here and, uh, and as life has taught us, uh, growth is not uh, achieved by spontaneous generation. You have to help uh, the economy grow by identifying those uh, sources of growth. And uh, we went through a, a very uh, simple, uh, common-sense process in order to identify our own sources of growth. Each country has its own sources of growth, com uh, depending on what uh, are our comparative advantages, what are our natural resources, what is needed, what type of population we have. In the case of Colombia, we we made a simple, a simple uh, uh, question. Uh, what is it that we need the most in order simply to uh, achieve the same level of development of the countries that are similar to Colombia? And we identified immediately uh, some, some uh, sources of growth that we, that we defined as locomotives of growth, infrastructure, we're behind in infrastructure. We need a lot of investment in infrastructure. 
and so we identified as one that is one locomotive housing housing has always been Colombia or anywhere a tremendous source of growth because housing usually pools uh, 30 or 31 or 32, in the case of Colombia, 32 industries, uh, cement industry, the steel industry, the different industry, they, they pulled them, and so that was another source of growth, and we had a big deficit in, grow, in, in the housing, and so we, we put in place a very ambitious objectives in terms of the number of housing that we are going to construct in the next four years. The third locomotive that we identified was the agribusiness and the rural areas. In today's world, one, one sees that uh, the food is becoming scarce, scarce. and uh, if China continues to grow and India continues to grow and Indonesia continues to grow, uh, there's going to be a food crisis. Many say that it has already started. You've seen the prices of the commodities go up and up, uh, and that's because there's the demand is growing higher at a higher rate than the, the supply. And Colombia, fortunately, is one of the few countries in the world that has ample land to increase the production of food. And we haven't been able to do that because of the security reasons. For 40, 50 years, these were areas, more than 5 million hectares, uh, hectares uh, that were controlled by by the illegal armed groups, and uh, so we then, with the security recovered, we have that amount of land to increase food production and stimulate the whole agribusiness and the production of food. The fourth locomotive that we identified was um, mining and oil. We are a very rich country in, in natural resources. We produce a lot of oil. We produce a lot of coal. We, we have a lot of, of mines, uh, gold. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a tremendous potential. And that is a loco locomotive that is already growing at around 12, 13, 14%. Uh, and there was an, a fifth locomotive that we identified um, as a a sustainer for the for the other four in the long run, which is a word that uh, is now very fashionable, which is innovation. Innovation as a source of growth. And why did we choose innovation as a source of growth? Because all of Latin America, for the last uh, 20, 30, 40 years, have always been signaled as economies with a very low productivity. And uh, when you study the countries that have had high sustainable growth for many years, you discover that the component of that growth, uh, roughly 50% has been higher productivity, or you can use another word, innovation. So we said, if we have low productivity, there's a tremendous potential to grow through simply innovating. And so we consider that the fifth locomotive. And we put in place uh, a national development plan, which for the first time in many years in our history was not simply the, the sum of each ministry 
the agriculture ministry has its plans, and then you have the mines ministry, and then you have the uh, labor ministry. No, we set up a plan that was coordinated. What happens in communications and uh, affects what happens in the education. What happens in the education affects what happens in the health sector. And so it's, it's a comprehensive and integrated plan that we put uh, in place and that we had approved in Congress. That in terms of, of, of the policies, of the economic policies that we put in place. At the same time, we did two other things which are very important. The social uh, policies and the social objectives. Uh, we, can, we can grow at a high rate, but if we continue to have this uh, very unequal distribution of the wealth of the country, the country will not be sustainable. And if we continue to have such a high percentage of poor people, the country will not be sustainable. So we put in place some very focalized policies to address these two problems, especially the fight against poverty, the reduction of poverty, and the reduction of extreme poverty. To the extent that we have today uh, identified the families that we want to take out of extreme poverty, 350,000 families, we have them identified where they live, what are their needs, where can we help them, where can we convince them to help themselves, and the objective is to graduate at least 350,000 families out of extreme poverty. Uh, because that's a, another necessary condition for our sustainability in the long run. Now, all this, uh, to do all this, you need something, a word which is today uh, very much in need around the world, which is governability. The ability to govern. The ability to take decisions and to make reforms that are necessary. So what I did was when I won the elections, and uh, thank God I won it by a big margin, uh, I called for a national government. Usually the coalitions of national government are, are uh, uh, made to win elections. In our case, I made it after I won in order to be able to govern, govern effectively. So I called in, I did something that, that Abraham Lincoln did uh, when he won his election before the Civil War was bring in your rivals into the cabinet. And I, I brought in my rivals, the people who had competed with me in the elections, I brought them into the cabinet but not only because they were nice people, but because they had good ideas. And so I said uh, to uh, the head of the Liberal Party, you have a good, um, a, a good proposal for employment. Okay, I will, I will adopt your proposal because it's very similar to my objective and you come into government. And I told the Conservative Party, you have a good proposal on X and Y, come in and let's create a national government. And they all responded, uh, uh, most of them, positively. 
five out of, uh, out of six parties said, we will come in. So that gave me the political base to be able to put in place those ideas uh, on the economic uh, scene and on the social scene. And to have uh, major reforms approved that we had for many, many years thought that that was what we needed to do, but that nobody had the political capacity to do it. So that allow, allowed us in, in the last 15 months to approve reforms that nobody imagined that were possible uh, two, three, four years ago. And that immediately uh, brought a, a change in the, in the way people started looking at Colombia. Here it is, a democracy that has gone through hell because we have had 40, almost 50 years of violence, that we were considered the parias of the world. Suddenly, a democracy uh, respecting the, the rights of the people, uh, taking decisions which many times uh, could be unpopular. For example, one of the reforms that we, that we made was um, to introduce in our constitution the concept of fiscal sustainability. Um, that concept, uh, we introduced it as a criteria to be taken into account in any decision that either the judicial power, the legislation, or the executive power takes. We must take into consideration the concept of fiscal sustainability. And at the same time, we had approved a, a law in Congress. We made a, a law that, uh, that forces us, the government, the executive power, to uh, to behave within certain limits in our spending, in our expenditure. That by itself, those two reforms immediately triggered a tremendous interest of the whole world of investors in our foreign debt, in our foreign bonds. Our spreads came down. We were granted uh, investment grade by the credit agencies and said this is a country that is performing responsibly. Uh, we have had approved a very ambitious law on the distribution of our royalties in order to, to give uh, the royalties to the more needed regions and the more needed people. The poor and the poor regions have a priority in the distribution of the royalties. And 10% of all royalties will go into research and development, which is something that any country needs if they want to have a sustainable growth. And we approved a law which is being considered a, a very unique law worldwide that uh, allow, allows us to repair the victims of violence and to restitute the land to the peasants that were displaced by the violent groups. Um, this is a law that's going to transform the, the rural structure of our country. And it's a law that will allow us to look at the future with much more optimism and with less, uh, less reasons to, to keep fighting among each other. I say this is a law that will allow us to heal our wounds after 50 years of, of war.
and it's already working. And uh, you go to Colombia and you see the people are starting to heal their wounds. Uh, if you repair a victim, and I, I say this very respectfully, but very graphically, uh, you, you probably saw, remember the, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina, uh, always uh, united in the, in the Plaza of Buenos Aires, asking for justice. Uh, we want uh, the victims to feel that they, they've been repaired and allow the victims to look at the future instead of looking in the past. And uh, this is the, the, the whole sense of this, of this law, which also changes the, the, the paradigm where we uh, perform and we behave in order to get all these elements that I'm, I'm mentioning together and be able to take off in our, in our development and in our progress. So this political governability plus the social uh, policies plus the economic growth policies have been put together and are starting to work and are starting to, to have concrete results. For example, in the last uh, year, we were the country uh, in the region and some people say in the world in relative terms that has created more jobs. 1,085,000 jobs we created in the last year, last 13 months. And most of them formal jobs, which is even better. Uh, while what you see in Europe, what you see in the US, what you see in many countries is how many jobs are we going to lose with this recession, with this... Uh, uh, this has allowed us to construct for the first time in our history uh, more than 270,000 new houses, popular houses for the poor. Um, investment is coming in at a rate that we had never seen in our history. And we're in a way breaking many of the records in, in, in many of the indicators. So the, the, the big challenge now is to see how we can make this sustainable in the future. One of the big uh, challenges that we have has to do with what uh, Lord Stern was, was uh, mentioning. Um, how, in today's world, can we make our growth sustainable and uh, environmentally responsible? Being rich in mines and oil, but having the the Colombia is the, the richest country in the world in terms of biodiversity per square kilometer. Very, very rich country. How, how do you make that, those two compatible? And uh, this is the type of, of dilemmas and challenges that we have right now. I, I told my, my uh, environmental minister and the, mine, and the minister of mines, get together and uh, try to design state-of-the-art in terms of regulation to make making mining and the preservation of the environment compatible. And those are the type of issues that we are now uh, confronting on a daily, on a daily basis. There, uh, emerges uh, problems of this, of this sort emerges every day. We still have a conflict. We still have illegal groups. Uh, I've told them uh, we will 
negotiate a peace process if you have goodwill to sit down and reach an agreement. Otherwise, we will continue to fight you militarily. And uh, I've been, uh, we've been very successful in fighting them militarily. Um, why have we been successful? Again, we changed the way uh, people uh, operated. When I'll, I'll give you an anecdote of, of a, a specific event to illustrate what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say. Uh, I was Minister of Defense before being President. I came into, uh, as Minister of Defense, into the military and said, the intelligence of each force, Army, Navy, Air Force, and police, they didn't speak to each other. And I said, you will not, you, you will have to speak to each other, and if I, if I uh, know that you have not spoken to each other and have not shared your information and your intelligence with the other forces, uh, not only the director of intelligence, but the commander will go. Uh, I forced him to do something that they had never done. But I told him something uh, else. I got the, uh, the whole intelligence community in a, in a room like this, and I said, you must start thinking differently, out of the closet. Uh, think the unthinkable. And, uh, and um, uh, they said, think the unthinkable. Think, even if you think it's crazy, don't, go, don't worry. If you think it'll work, try it. So there were two ladies who, for the past 20 years, the only thing they did was hear the FARC, the guerrilla leaders, talk to each other. They, they were here for 20 years. And they said, well, the minister said, think the unthinkable. Uh, why don't we propose what we have discussed so many, so many times, that if we are able to technologically uh, get into the communications, we can give orders to, to the commanders as if we were another commander. And uh, they, they said they went to a sergeant. The sergeant, uh, this is a military hierarchy, said, you're absolutely crazy. You, you go back to, to work and, and, and stop thinking. But, but they persevered. And they went to a captain. And the captain said, my god, this might work. And he went up and up and came to me. And I, they were very poor women, humble women, but very intelligent. And they said, we can really, we know exactly how they speak, uh, what they do. We can give the orders. You probably remember uh, this lady, Colombian lady, Ingrid Betancourt. She was kidnapped by the guerrillas, and she spent 10 years with three Americans. Well, by listening to these two, two ladies and applying their, their, their proposal, we liberated 15 kidnapped people in Colombia without uh, firing one single shot. Uh, those type of changes, that is what I call innovation. And, and through those changes, we've been very successful in fighting the terrorism we, we are now one of, we export coffee and we export uh, how to fight drug traffickers and terrorists. This is a, a new know-how that Colombia has. No, and it's true. <laughs> this is true. 
but by applying this type of, of, of new thinking, of, of thinking always differently. So we're going in, 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 I think, in the correct uh, direction. We're playing a role in the region. Um, we, again, are regaining uh, something that we had lost, faith in our future, faith in our, and, uh, and, and feeling proud of being Colombians, and feeling proud of being uh, part of our country and doing what we, we are doing. And, and this, has, uh, this is like a virtuous circle. And so Colombia now is 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 uh, being signaled as a, as a as a rising star. I just I was just uh, last Friday having dinner with the president of Turkey. Uh, he is now coincidentally here in London also in an official visit, and we were discussing how how these two countries, Turkey is another rising star. We are now part of a group called the Civets. This is something that the intelligence uh, unit of the economist uh, invented. CVETS is Colombia, Indonesia, Vietnam, Egypt, Turkey, and South Africa. As the new BRICS, the, the, the BRIC was Brazil, Russia, India, and China. They were the countries that were the, the country with more future in the world. Well, after the BRIC come the CVETS. Colombia is the only country in Latin America. And we were saying to, with the Turkish president, how things have changed, how things uh, have changed in the last uh, 10, 15 years. It's incredible. Uh, he and I, coincidentally, he was Prime Minister, our Minister of Finance 10 years ago. We went through the worst crisis, economic crisis, that our countries have had in, in the last century. We had to take very unpopular decisions. Um, and uh, we were lectured by uh, the European countries, by the U.S., by Japan, you must lower your debt. You must strengthen your financial systems. You must have fiscal discipline. You must lower inflation. And we did all that. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, now, and now we are telling the Europeans, you must lower your debt. <laughs> you must. <laughs> and, uh, But then, but then we said, but we have to sustain this. Uh, uh, there's a, a, many rules uh, in the world, in, the, in, in, in life. Uh, the pendulum was one, one way or the other. Um, the only thing certain you have is death and taxes and all those things. But, but uh, one of the difficult things is sustainable growth in the long run. And uh, we were discussing what, what is it that could make us at least uh, this this good uh, times that we're living, how can we prolong it? How can we make it sustainable? Uh, and I think the answer, and this is simply the conclusion of, of this uh, talk uh, to you as students, is always think differently. Think the unthinkable. And then you will continue to progress. Thank you very much. Is this microphone working?
Mr. President, thank you so much for your very thoughtful uh, guidance. Um, nearly 40 years ago, you were a student here, and 30 or 40 years from now, some of you will be president of your country. Um, maybe prime minister, maybe minister, but I hope you'll all be good citizens, whether you're business, professional, or family. And we heard about foundation first in principles, in, polit in political philosophy and political economy, strategic priorities, looking at particular areas and, of uh, opportunity and growth, the specifics and the hard work of the detailed analysis, and of course, above all, the ability to deliver, and delivery requires governance, and to do all this in a creative and innovatory way. It was a very um, powerful lesson, Mr. President, and thank you very much. It would be very nice to think that you learnt some of that here at the LSE, but I suspect <laughs> you learnt most of it on the, uh, on the job. Um, we've got just about uh, 10 minutes, and I'm going to take three questions first, but please keep them uh, very short. Uh, lady just here. Um, Colombia is an emerging country, part of the civets, and um, sorry. what political outcome do you believe is necessary in Venezuela's presidential elections of 2012 in order to obtain, as Colombia, prosperity for all? Thank you. Um, I'll have a question. Uh, this, this gentleman in the, in the shirt at the about four, four rows back. Yeah. Yes, you. Yeah. Well, and a, and a sweater and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Mr. President, well, uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, just, you didn't mention, but I want to ask you uh, how you can attack or how you want to attack uh, the corruption in Colombia. Thank you. Uh, one more. Uh, this, uh, yep, this, this lady just here, about three rows back at the... Yes, you. Yes. Thank you. Very, thank you. Um, Mr. President, do you have any strategies in place to tackle income concentration at the top 1% of the population in Colombia? Thank you, and thank you for your brevity. Um, I'll try to get one more round of three if we possibly can. Mr. President. Uh, are you Venezuelan? Yes. I, I, <laughs> I thought so. Listen, um, um, uh, how can you, it's a tough question, I must say, <laughs> because uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story because I think it's, it's a story that, that will teach you um, something very, very important in life. Um, I was the most uh, acid critic and a probably the worst enemy that uh, President Chavez had. I, since his election, I was a former journalist and I used to bash him in every way possible. Uh, we were, we, we uh, thought completely differently and we, we still think completely differently. But when, when I got elected, uh, I thought to myself, and I said to myself, you're now head of state. You have a responsibility with 46 million Colombians. 
And uh, at that time, we have with Venezuela 2,200 kilometers of border, live border. We were not talking to each other. We had no diplomatic relations. We had no trade. And I, as a former minister of trade 20 years ago, negotiated with Venezuela a free trade agreement that was very successful, but because of our differences, trade was completely cut. And we were talking about war, war between Venezuela and Colombia. And so I said to myself, will I be able to change this? And I did something very audacious. The 7th of August, when I was inaugurated, in my speech, I said, I want to meet Mr. Chavez with no intermediary, he and I, and uh, see if we can um, behave as responsible heads of state. And uh, his answer was, yes, I'll meet. And uh, three days later, we were meeting in a, a town in the north of Colombia. And so we sat to, in front of each other. And uh, he, he had told me the worst things you can imagine. And I had told him the worst thing that you can imagine. <laughs> and I said, listen, we have a responsibility. And uh, I think there's a, a key, and this is the, the lesson, a key for us to have a cordial relation, and uh, the Venezuelans will, will, in the long run, benefit and the Colombians will. Let's respect our differences. Let's respect that you and I are different, that you have certain ideas that are very different from mine, and I will respect your differences and you respect mine. And if, you, if we can do that, we can then start working on our common denominators. And so far, 15 months, so good. We have been able to have cordial, and I, and I told him, don't ever believe that I will become a Bolivarian revolutionist, as I don't expect you to become a, a democratic capitalist. Uh, but respect our differences, and we've done that. And uh, quite frankly, today, we, both countries are better off because of that. Now, going back to your very difficult question, uh, um, it's up to it's up to Venezuelans, uh, and if uh, it's a decision that the Venezuelans have to take, uh, it would be very improper for me to come here, in London, and and trying to tell the Venezuelans what to do. Uh, what I say is, look what I've done, respecting private property, respecting uh, freedom of the press, respecting. Uh, my my democratic principles, and this is what I've achieved, um, and that's that's the way I can speak about my uh, my country. But I have to respect what Venezuelans decide to do with your country. This is another very important principle: you know, respect what other countries do. Um, I know you want a, a more specific answer, but I can't give it. <laughs> Uh, corruption, corruption. This is a, a priority for us. We 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 approved a something called the anti-corruption statute. It's probably one of the more drastic anti-corruption legislations in the world. Um, 
a person by the name of uh, Despeville, Bernard Despeville, who was the, ar the architect of the fight against corruption in Hong Kong, was recently in Colombia three weeks ago, and he said this anti-corruption statute is one of the most uh, aggressive and effective I've ever seen. And we have already started to apply it. And uh, you've seen corruption scandals coming out uh, almost uh, on a weekly basis. That's because we are applying the statute. Uh, sometimes you think, oh, look at that corruption. The problem with corruption is when you don't touch it, it grows slowly. But when you attack it, it emerges and people start to see it. And, and uh, you go to Colombia today and you will see that people are recognizing that finally we're really addressing this terrible problem, which is not only Colombian, many countries have it, on corruption. And, and, and people are starting to believe. And that also creates a virtue circle. If people believe, they denounce and they help in the fight against corruption. And about income concentration, that's what I, I was mentioning about the social policies. Um, take people out of poverty and the income distribution um, which in Colombia is one of the worst, not only of Latin America, of the world, is something we are addressing very, very uh, concretely with uh, the policies, like the ones mentioned, and we, ha we have other policies. And, and uh, But this is something that for us, as I said at the beginning, is very important because in order to be sustainable and to be competitive, uh, an economy cannot be so unequal. Uh, the the extremes uh, makes us very non-competitive, and so it's it's uh, even in our own um, uh, interest to to fight that uh, what, that uh, problem, which is I recognize one of the big problems Colombia has. Thank you very much. Now uh, it is one o'clock. I'm going to take my guidance from our friend, uh, yeah, Colombian me. ambassador here. How long? Okay, so let's take, uh, thank you very much, let's take one round of three again, there's a lady here. Uh, and Santos, um, being Colombia a rising star as you mentioned, how would you describe Colombia's role in the South American region, especially with your differences with Ecuador and Venezuela? Thank you. Uh, this gentleman in the blue shirt just here. Uh, President Santos, thank you very much. Um, given the controversy caused on this issue by your predecessor, may I ask if you are planning to run for a second term? <laughs> and, uh, no, no, sorry, there's a lady at the front row here, just this lady here. Hi, um, well, just one thing, the question on the 1% income distribution was not addressed. Uh, Maybe you want to address it? <laughs> and my question was, um, there, you didn't mention education in, in the last um, 50 minutes. I was just wondering what are the education policies that you're really trying to pursue in the coming years? Thank you, Mr. President. Um, the role of Colombia in the region. The, the first thing we did was to normalize our relations with our neighbors because we had a very bad relation with 
with Venezuela and also with Ecuador. We had no diplomatic relations with Ecuador. So we normalized both relations and we improved relations with Argentina, with the, we improved relations with Brazil to the extent that they elected a Colombian to be the Secretary General of UNASUR, which is the new entity that is, covers the, the whole of South America. So the situation, Colombian situation, sort of changed dramatically uh, in the region, and we're playing a, a role of, of a, a pivot between South America and Central America, Mexico, and the Caribbean. And uh, for example, we we played a role uh, of trying of, of helping Honduras get back into the OAS uh, with with Venezuela, and we managed to do that. So we are we're and we are stimulating the region to integrate, even though we have uh, differences, but we integrate in what unites us. Latin America has a tremendous future. We, ha we have everything the world is, is needing today. We have energy, and the world is needing more and more energy. We have w lots of water, and many people say that the next wars will be fought around the lack of water. We have tremendous potential, as I mentioned, to increase the production of food in Latin America. Uh, we have a young population, which today is a very big asset. And we have tremendous biodiversity. And those are the assets and, uh, and resources that today are very valuable and will be more valuable tomorrow. So if we unite as a, country, as, as, as a region, we will be much more relevant in world affairs. And that's the role we're trying to play. Am I running for the second term? Are you a journalist? <laughs> no, I will, I will give you a very diplomatic answer. I don't want to run for a second term. And I, and I, I say you quite frankly, I, if I am able to achieve most of the objectives in, in, in four years, I would prefer to come here if Lord Stern uh, gives me a job as a teacher in LSE or something. And I, I said, I, I would very much like to come back to London because I had the best years of my life here in London. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have the problems that my predecessor have because I don't have to change the constitution. I would be the first president uh, to be able to run without having to change the constitution in, in my favor. So um, I hope I can continue to give results so I can come back to London earlier. Otherwise, uh, I will stay for four, for, for four years more. That's um, on the education. This is a education I've, I have um, um, defined as we have these locomotives and they are the railways. Education is one of the railways and, and uh, the environment is, is another one. It's transversal. We have, we have progressed a lot in the coverage of basic education, we almost have 100%. Um, on uh, higher education, we have a 37% uh, and we want to increase it to 50. But we're making a tremendous effort in uh, increasing the quality of education. And we are applying to be members of the OECD. Uh, in part because 
it's a club of good practices, and uh, in part because the OECD is one of the best uh, thermometers to see how to benchmark in, in, in terms of education. And in, in, all, in all these um, uh, exams that, 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 that we have, Colombia per performs poorly. And so we have a, a very big challenge there to increase. And, and we're putting in place uh, processes whereby we have to increase the training of teachers. Uh, the, for, for example, the process to, um, how do you say, accreditar, uh, certifying. Uh, the, the universities uh, internationally. Uh, it's a process that you, you, you can't do it from one day to another, but, but we are very conscious that quality of education is extremely important. And we want, and we, we were talking with the UK government, uh, and they're going to help us a lot in not only improving our education, but also uh, giving more importance also to technical and technological education, higher education. Uh, Colombia has a, a, a small coverage of higher education, but most of the students that go to higher education are university students. We're, and the, the percentage is more or less 65, 70 to 30. We want to at least have 50-50, and that's another of the objectives we have. Um, that's it. Okay. Um, Mr. President, um, our appointments procedures don't allow me to make you a formal offer at, uh, <laughs> on, on this occasion, but um, we've learned so much from you uh, today um, about the challenges of, uh, I mean, to govern is to decide, but you've also focused very strongly on deciding wisely and strategically and on the basis of evidence and that was a very powerful lesson uh, to us all so we're enormously grateful to you for coming now I understand I've got a little note here saying we've got a certificate but I can't see the certificate it, where, it, where is it? Oh, it's hiding there. Oh. <laughs> But before that, there's a... <laughs> it's been a real privilege to have you with us today. Thank you so much from us all.